Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Democracy Day at the 2022 Sydney Writers Festival. Thank you all for coming. I presume you've had your sausages. Um, my name is Ailsa Piper, and writing and occasional acting are my day jobs. But today, I'm delighted to host this conversation between two of Australia's most awarded and admired writers, Amanda Laurie, who's going to join us shortly from Tasmania, and Charlotte Wood. Thank you. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are meeting on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to pay my respects to Elders past and present for their continuing custodianship. So, Charlotte Wood is the author of six novels and three books of non-fiction. Her latest is This Glorious Thing, The Luminous Solution, Creativity, Resilience and The Inner Life. Her most recent novel, The Weekend, was shortlisted for several prizes, including the Stella and the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction. Of course, she won both those prizes, among many others, for her 2016 novel, The Natural Way of Things. She was made a member of the Order of Australia for Significant Services to Literature in 2019. <laughs> Thank you. She's very significant. Um, just because some of you may have only read one of these books, I'm just going to give a quick snapshot of both of them so that in case you are not across both. So The Luminous Solution is a collection of essays or chapters that are, it's about creativity in the garden and on the gallery wall. It touches on anger and laughter as forces for creativity, intuition and hard thinking, ageing and making. It's a book about making. But it's a book of very big ideas, unpacked thoughtfully and given plenty of air and space so that they can find unexpected connections. There's an intimacy about it, so it has the feel of memoir, but there's also a calm detachment that lends it authority. For many people, it's become a kind of creative guide or a wellspring. Amanda Laurie writes both fiction and non-fiction, and any moment we're going to see her beaming into us from Tasmania. She has taught at the University of Tasmania, the University of Technology, Sydney, and the University of Queensland. And there she is. Welcome, Amanda. <laughs> Amanda's a regular contributor to The Monthly and a former senior fellow of the Australia Council's Literature Board. She received the 2012 Patrick White Award, which is made to an Australian writer in acknowledgement of the significant contribution of their body of work. In 2021, her eighth novel, this exquisite work, won the Miles Franklin Literary Award, a Prime Minister's Literary Award and the Voss Literary Prize. And it was shortlisted for the Age Book of the Year and a Queensland Literary Award. Yes, that deserves applause. The Labyrinth is a novel about a woman, Erica Marsden, who relocates from Sydney to a hamlet on the south coast after her only child, a son who is also an artist, is imprisoned for life. Erica dreams of a labyrinth and wakes with a compulsion to build one. The book is rich with the kind of insights that one might hope to find while walking a labyrinth, but it's never ever prescriptive. It grapples with both the destructive and the healing possibilities of art or making. So, for both of you, I imagine you've squirmed your way now through introductions. They're always the worst bit to have to listen to. Um, and for me, they never really give me quite what I want to know. So, I'd like to remedy that or try to. Charlotte, two of the most potent images that you put up in The Luminous Solution are actually from childhood. One is you in a little pram, lying under a tree, looking up at the light, and you're eating twigs and stones. <laughs> and the other one is a toddler in church, and you're sucking on the uh, church pew. Um, I'm not trying to say that you've got an oral fixation, <laughs> but I just wondered if you could talk a little about your early years, your family, or where you grew up, just in light of your creative 
explorations. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm so happy to be here with Ailsa and especially Amanda, who I admire so much. Um, yeah, well, look, the sticks and rocks it wasn't my fault because that was my older sister feeding them to me when I was in <laughs> helpless in the pram. Um, and the other bit about sucking on the church pew, um, there are a lot of people I've discovered who who did that same thing because they keep they say to me, I remember that taste of the pew in the church. <laughs> so that's, we're all very strange. Um, so I grew up in a country town called Cooma in a big family. Um, we had a very, you know, kind of romantic, free-range kind of childhood like lots of us did then. Uh, we basically were just sent outside as much as possible in the freezing bloody Monero weather um, to just run around with our friends up to the bush and whatever. Um, but my family was very big on making. My dad was one of those people who could make anything, you know, that sort of woodwork and do electrical things and made props for the little theatre company <laughs> and decorations and sort of very elaborate um, school, um, you know, book week outfits and stuff. And my mother was a florist and a gardener. So we had... Um, a sense from birth, really, that making things with your hands, imagining things, um, the, the creation of beauty was a really integral part of life. Um, and I really value that. Mm, beautiful. Talking about work, work routine and work, working days, let's go to that. Um, now, do you feel like you've got any of the looseness of childhood in your working days? Or over the years, do you feel like you've actually become more stern with yourself? Mm. Well, I try to be... Well, I, I have a sort of productivity, you know, good girly thing <laughs> about sitting at the desk and um, turning up and that sort of work ethic, which is really important and essential to get any work done. But as I go on through the years, and Amanda was one of the people who sort of taught me this, I think, I have become, learned to trust the work, learned to trust that it will come if you let it, rather than sort of wrangling it to the ground. Mm. Um, so I still, the routine of turning up, you know, for a certain number of hours or I do sort of count, you know, at the moment I'm redrafting so I'm going to make sort of little goal is 10 pages a day or something. Little goal, um, that's quite large. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to have something to work towards that's measurable um, but within that it's, it's better if I loosen the reins a bit in terms of you know, there's so much anxiety attached to the writing process. So if I can sort of just loosen up and go, it will happen if I let it happen. Um, I'm just getting slowly better at, at doing that. Mm. As a student, as a, going back to you as a child, was that dreaminess the majority or was the good girl there on your back? Is mm. that where it comes from, do you think? I don't know as a child. I mean, I never wrote as a child or anything. I never... Um, I wasn't one of those people who did... Um, you know, made little books or anything that lots of writers uh, were like that. But I, it, it was just, it just seemed very natural and normal to make stuff, make mm. pictures, make, um, you know, mud pies, whatever. Mm. It wasn't, uh, there was no sort of sense of professionalism or achievement about what it was you were making. It was just mucking around, mm. which I think is really helpful. Mm. Um, I'm going to quote Amanda's epigraph from her book just to keep her with us in the room. Um, the epigraph to the labyrinth is actually, it's written by Amanda, but it's sort of quoting her father. And the epigraph reads, it's Jung, or it's her quoting Jung, the cure for many ills, noted Jung, is to build something. Mm. Um, can you talk about that? I don't mean I want you to psychoanalyse yourself and your ills, but... <coughs> That's really what The Luminous Solution's about, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, and I believe that. And when I read that in um, The Labyrinth, I thought of my mum who would, whenever you, we said we were bored, she would say, well, go and do something constructive, <laughs> and literally constructive, and I think that absolutely does help. And Amanda, we see you again. We see you. Can we hear ah. you? Ah. ah, you're here. <laughs> Hooray. Thank you.
How lovely to see you. Now, we're just talking about the epigraph, actually, um, that you... It's, it's in your words or kind of the words of the father in the book, but the cure to, is to build something, according to Jung. And Charlotte was just talking about that. Well, I'll ask you in a moment, but Charlotte, I'll just let you finish that. I was just saying, Amanda, that my mum used to say, go and do something constructive if, you know, you were bored or something. And she kind of meant literally constructive. And I really learned from that, that if I get, you know, depressed or um, just anxious or whatever, making something, and for me it's often cooking, mm. Or getting into the garden, or but making something that wasn't there before you made it is to me so nourishing to the my sense of myself, sort of grounded sense of myself that it's crucial. Mm. Cleaning too, doing washing, I, I mm. think can be like that. Mm, not so you? much. <laughs> it's not making, but it's doing. Um, Amanda, can we backtrack because I'm sure everyone would really love for you to talk a little about your childhood. Um, or your family or early years, what you feel like sharing with us? Well, can you hear me, first of all? Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Um, well, I, <clears throat> I probably had a good upbringing for a writer because um, it was the height of the Cold War in the 1950s and my family were militant trade unionists, but I was sent to a Catholic school where there was a great deal of preaching about the Red Menace and I thought, oh, they're talking about my family. <laughs> um, and I think what happens in childhood, if you're uh, presented with conflicting stories about how the world works, you're actually forced to think, well, what's my story? Um, what am I going to make of this? Um, maybe I'll make some hybrid story of it, but I'll come up with my own story. Um, and that's the way for a child really to deal with stress, I think. Um, to, to devise their own stories. And, in fact, much later in life I learned there was such a thing as narrative therapy mm -hmm. where um, therapists actually encourage their clients. I've never had it. I can't afford it. But um, the... It's all right. We will, the magic of the internet will bring her back. In, in, with a different uh, layer of meaning or different interpretation. Apparently this works for some people. So... I had an early grounding in this, um, and I have to say it was um, a very lively, very stimulating way of having a childhood. Um, you had to think on your feet. Mm -hmm. Did you have siblings? I had two much younger brothers who, to my mind, were so much younger they didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> How do they feel when you say that now? <laughs> Well, we're actually getting on very well now. Um, sibling rivalry, if you're lucky, fades with time. Mm. I'm interested that you put an only child at the centre of the labyrinth and uh, the kind of weight that that brings to bear on both the parent and the child. It seems to me there's an enormous hothouse about that. Was that something that you uh, were familiar with from people around you or...? No, no, we didn't grow up in an emotional hothouse. We grew up in the 50s, you know. It was go outside and play, Charlotte said. Charlotte, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, if you hurt yourself, it was, you know, buck up, don't cry, don't be a sook, that sort of thing. Um, that whole culture now is, is in decline, if, if not annihilated. We now have the opposite with parents. Um, no, it wasn't in an emotional hothouse. I... It's a short, the labyrinth is a short novel. It's only 60,000 words. The average novel is 100,000 words. Mm. I didn't want to get into certain issues. I wanted to stay very focused on where it's at. So I did not want to get into sibling relationships. Mm. So that's why he's an only child. It's mm. just a narrative um, decision about how to keep a clear focus on certain ideas and not get bogged down in others. Mm. Mm. Um, I'd like to just stay with the labyrinth for a moment and the actual uh, labyrinth itself, the thing and the moment when it hit you that a labyrinth was going to be at the centre because it is such a beautiful metaphor for a, everything. I mean, you can take everything into that metaphor. But when did you first think that's going to be the heart of the book? Well, if you write about the way we live now, which I do and Charlotte does, 
you're constantly processing interesting information. You're looking around you all the time. You're eavesdropping in coffee shops. Um, and one of the things I noticed was that there was there had been this explosion in the building of labyrinths around the world. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Why do people build them? Um, why would an individual choose to build one? So I spoke to some people about it who'd built them, and they'd say things like, well, I think it's a lovely garden feature. <laughs> I couldn't find anyone who could articulate why they'd built one, and I thought, oh, there's something going on here at a deeper level that people don't have the words for. So what's a writer for? A writer's there to explore this. Um, and uh, that's what I did. And I didn't really, you know, I didn't really know where I was going with it. I had no interest in building one myself. I don't have one. I don't want one. So it wasn't a frustrated desire to make something. Um, <laughs> And in the end, I realised what I was dealing with was a very complex image of our desires and feelings and archetypal dreams, um, a very beautiful image that couldn't be summarised, couldn't be reduced down to a few formula that has its own power and beauty, stands for itself. Uh, it's not a metaphor, it's an image. And I thought, oh, I can work with this. So that's what I, I tried to do. Mm. It's interesting you said you became aware of things out in the world, that, you know, you became aware people were building labyrinths. I'd kind of like to ask both of you, how much do you think you need for your work to be aware of the outside world, engaged with it, participating in it, and how much do you need to withdraw from it? Um, Charlotte, do you want to maybe mm. address that first? This is a big struggle for me, and... I suspect for a lot of writers that question of how much do you need to step away from, you know, just the chaos of the world, A, in order to just get your work done, but B, in order to look at it with a little bit of um, distance. Um, so I, I do sort of try and get away, like remove myself for periods of time, you know, to go and work and stuff. But But I also think... It's interesting now that, now that I have been able to write full-time in the last few years, which is very unusual for an Australian writer and very unusual for me, and it's great, of course, but it also, when you've got a day job, you're in the world and you're seeing stuff and you're, you've got, you know, your antenna is sort of much more right out in the world. So I think there's a danger in writers being too removed from the world um, that you just lose touch with just the things that are going on for people in their day to day. Um, so it is a real tension for me. It's mm. always it's it's a difficult thing. But that's where public transport is excellent. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> coffee shops, lots of places to eavesdrop, mm. art gallery, cafes, especially for me. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Amanda? I mean, I'm interested in how you became aware of the burgeoning numbers of labyrinths in the world. Well, you know, you, you, you're absorbing information all the time, aren't you? You know, you're just a constant sponge. Are you a social media watcher? Um, not particularly. I, I read a lot of things online. I, I, I don't have a smartphone. Um, so there's a limit. I mean, I love other people's TikTok and uh, <laughs> Twitter, but... I don't actually want to be bothered by it all day myself because I would be undisciplined and I'd check it all the time. Mm. So, um, so I have this sort of um, weird little $90 flip top. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I'm just a natural sponge, I think. I, 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 it's, I sit in a, a locked room and I somehow seem to absorb a lot of stuff. <laughs> and my husband's always surprised. He's always surprised at how much trivia I know and I'm always... <laughs> and how much he doesn't know. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know, I think writers are, writers who write about the way we live now are natural sponges. They're just so fascinated, you know. By, um, I could talk forever about the sort of shoes people wear or, uh, you know, when I talk about trivia, I mean um, the little things that, that give us away. Uh, mm. And you, you can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. Um, I tend to, when I meet people, to interrogate them. And this is often interpreted as rudeness. But I'm just curious. Mm. Uh, 
and I want to know stuff. And but all this kind of you know this cloud of, of information floats around you all the time. But there'll be one or two things that nag at you over time, mm. and they find um, their way into your work. Mm. Are you a big one for silence? Like, do you need silence? Is this comfortable for you? I need silence to work, yes. Mm. Um, I'm interested in people who work with music on. Mm. I can't, no. Yeah. Uh, I need a cork-lined room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm e so easily distracted. I mean, being easily distracted actually goes with being the sponge that's mm -hmm. always absorbing information. Um, and I think that's actually quite a female thing. Mm. And, you know, we're porous and we've got these radar that are always scanning the horizon, scanning the room. And um, you can't help yourself. It just happens. So if you're going to get your work done, you've got to lock yourself away. But that's quite tricky because a writer actually needs to have one foot in the world and one foot out. And it's... Mm. Times it could feel like sitting on a barbed wire fence. <laughs> You're neither satisfyingly in one space or the other and the tensions will keep pulling at you, particularly if you're a woman, because women tend to carry more um, of the load of social life and relationships. Um, excuse my generalisations, but I'm old enough now to make them <laughs> assertive. But, yes, for women it's, I think, more difficult and... Uh, so there's always this balancing act going on that Charlotte spoke of. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there's a young Sydney writer called Oliver Mole who um, got very stuck, couldn't get any work done, ran out of money, was forced to get a job as a train guard with New South Wales Rail, much to the horror of his friends. Well, guess what? He's produced a wonderful book about being a train guard mm, yeah, with New South Wales yeah. Rail. So you never know where your material is coming from. You have to stay open. Mm. Well, thank you, Elsa, for reading that so beautifully. Um, you, um, well, you kind of wait for them to suggest themselves. Sometimes there's a point in, in the story where there's a kind, an obvious dream will suggest itself, a fairly crude one. And um, other times you need something more complex that draws together elements uh, of the story. And so, like so much writing, you hope for the best and you hope they'll turn up. Um, generally, I think in fiction it's a mistake to use one of your own because it won't have the same potent charge for the reader that it has for you. So you've actually got to invent um, a dream that is meaningful for the reader and relates to the story. Uh, and... It's not that difficult. It's just a lot of uh, trial and error, you know, a lot of drafts until you think, yeah, that's it. Um, but uh, the reason I use them is that I think, you know, if you're trying to capture how life is, which is basically what you're trying to do when you write fiction, if you just kind of write about the literal surface, um, you're going to be missing that whole kind of oceanic dimension beneath thought and conscious thought and feeling and action that informs our lives. So how are you going to suggest that in an economically written narrative? And one of the most resonant and suggestive ways to do that, I think, is to use the dream, um, which both conveys the essential mystery of our lives, it's inexplicable, while throwing out vital clues. So it does those two important things at the one time. And I can't think of any other way in storytelling that you can actually do both at once. Mm -hmm. um, because cause and effect is so complex. If you try and unpack them in a novel, you can get bogged down in an awful lot of explanation, um, telling the reader what to think, what to feel, um, analysing, analysing. I don't know about you, but I don't like that kind of writing. So you want something potent and suggestive, but also in as few words as possible. Mm. You talked about drafting and redrafting, and um, I would love for both of you to speak a little about that. But, but where you get to, Amanda, in the labyrinth, it seems to me with you know, this 60,000-word compression, is 
something that is poetic because it's so spare. And I was really struck um, by both opening sentences of this and the opening sentence of Natural Way of Things. The opening sentence of this book is, let me begin in my father's house. Mm. And it's so satisfying as a reader. But I thought, I bet, I don't know, it might have been where you started, but I would love to know, did you have to draft and draft to find that beginning or was that simplicity there from the start? And I'll just remind those of you who can't remember the beginning of Natural Way of Things. <laughs> so there were kookaburras here. Bang. How hard is it to get that kind of compression and um, seeming simplicity? Um, maybe, Charlotte, do you want to talk first? It's interesting. I'd forgotten what the first line of The Natural Way of Things is. Like, oh, that's it's imprinted on my mind. Um, it's one of my favourites. I like that first line because the story's already begun and the, the reader has to sort of catch up. And I always like that... Um, sense of ener an energising beginning where... Because um, I'm constantly just um, obsessively worried about not having enough plot or not having enough... Um, I don't know what it is, but that sense of... Just that word, so, so there were kookaburras here, mm -hmm. indicates something that's hard to explain, but it's almost like the, the narrator has been having a life before you got there as a reader and you were just like, whoa, what, what's happening, what's happening? Mm. So it is, um, I mean, rewriting is, is, is everything, uh, revising every sentence. But I guess the first one, I'm having trouble with the one I'm writing now, the very beginning. I keep moving, swapping these two paragraphs over, thinking which one has got that sort of um, movement in it that's required. And Amanda, back to you. I mean, there's the beginning idea and the beginning of writing, but then there's the beginning of the book. How, how do you negotiate that? Well, first of all, those two sentences you read out have concrete nouns. Mm. Um, always a tick. Mm. <laughs> uh, no waffle. Uh, rewriting is, for me, uh, cutting out the blah. And I have a genius for blah, so I do a lot of rewriting <laughs> and a lot of, lot of cutting. You keep coming back to your concrete nouns, you know. You can't go wrong with kookaburras. That's a brilliant... brilliant. <laughs> um, seriously, you can't. Um, whether you're an Australian reader or um, one from another country, bang, you know, you've got them. Um, snakes are good too. Uh, so that just that sort of uh, concrete language that you're looking for that will hook a reader straight away. But... As Charlotte said, there's just endless rewriting. It's just endless until you hear what you need to hear. You hear the tone often. It's the right tone of address. It's the right mm. conviction of tone. And you know yourself in a bookshop, you'll, be, you'll go in to buy a new book and you'll pick up a book and you'll flick through the books. Why well, I never buy books online anymore. I need to do that. And you look for that conviction of tone. This person knows what they're talking about and they're going to tell me what mm. it is and I can relax and surrender to it. But from the writer's point of view, it can take endless drafts to get that. You know it when you see it or hear it. You hear it more than see it. But it takes a long time to get it. And that scene in the uh, Opens the Labyrinth, which for a long time was in the middle of the novel, um. for example. <laughs> can I just say something about yeah. that line too? It has a kind of... Um, that phrase, in my father's house, yes. is so resonant. You know, it has, it has you know, the Bible in it mm. that, that I think helps give it that enormous strength and conviction just immediately. Mm. Um, I was struck by something that you do in The Labyrinth because if you haven't read it, there are scenes, there, there's scenes about other books. And at one point, going through the son's books, she opens out, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and and reads the opening of Kidnapped and I'm just trying to find somewhere I never can remember where I am in my notes because I don't look at them but um, I uh, she actually quote you quote or you have Erica quote the opening and you say what a marvelous opening it is and this direct opening which of course the first thing you do as a reader is you go well what's the opening to this so you're sort of inviting this comparison with this supposedly brilliant opening. 
It feels. <laughs> it felt like such an audacious thing to do, um, to invoke the reader to look back and check your opening and measure it. Was were you conscious of? Obviously, you were conscious of it, but yeah. Yes, I was of that. But you know, sometimes I go back and look at my work and I see links that I wasn't conscious of. Mm. And I think, oh, that's interesting. I didn't mm. know I did that. Mm. So some of those links, yes, you, you do insert them deliberately and you hope the reader picks up on them. But other ones just kind of happen. And, you know, as Charlotte would know, it's part of the sort of pleasure of writing that you're not wholly in control of that. Mm. Um, you, you listen. You listen for the rightness of it. But... It comes or it doesn't, you know. You don't sort of plot it all out um, in in this controlled way. Um, it's very exploratory and it's a lot of fun sometimes when it's working. Um, and you, a lot of, I, again, I keep coming up to this thing about writing about the way we live now. To make that meaningful, you often call on many cultural references, both from the past and the present. Um, so, for example, in the labyrinth, there are some biblical references. Uh, it's not a religious novel, but there are biblical references, which um, are well enough known, I hope, for them to resonate for the reader. Um, so that in, in a particular scene, they will add another dimension of meaning to that scene for that reader who gets that reference. Mm. It's that river that is what dreams do, isn't it? It's the river of cultural references that you can draw on, I suppose, as well. Um, I would like to um, ask you both if you think you've changed much as writers. Like, you know, we were talking about you as children, but the beginning writer, if you cast your mind back to first or second novel, if you can, because you've both taught, so you've had to think about writing a lot, actually, as a, as a craft as well. How do you think you've changed as a writer, if you have? Who wants to go first? I can go first. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think, you know, what I, I said in the beginning about learning to trust that the work will come. I, I'm more trusting. I still labour to, to get to that place of trust. But I am... I am it's more interesting to, to allow the work to come rather than thinking, right, I've got to write it. I mean, I've never planned out, same as Amanda, I've never plotted out things in advance or, you know, I often, I, mean, I usually start with some sort of place or setting. Yeah. Um, but what I am, I find more exciting now is, is letting go and waiting for those things that you, you can't sort of um, find them without waiting for them to come up from your from your unconscious or from as Amanda, you know, your sponge, your sponginess um, <laughs> is that's more and more important to me now that that I um, let my kind of primitive brain, um, well, that, that sort of receptive self come. And I one thing I learned from the natural way of things was about the. I really believe this, and it sounds kind of mystical, but I believe it now, that a book will tell you how to write it if you pay attention, listen, sort of stay awake to it. That doesn't take away any of the kind of, you know, discipline, the, the kind of convergent, the, the editorial thinking that comes later, the more sort of um, hard intellect side. But for me, it, I'm just... I hope I'm getting better at letting the the weird stuff kind of rise up. Uh, and that's, to me, what where the art is. Mm. And then the craft comes in to shape it and make it make sense. Mm. It's a kind of confidence too, isn't it, that it will come? Yeah. Which must be yeah. earned, Yeah, and I it's guess. sort of, you know, six books or whatever, nine books in, you should have confidence that it will come. Mm. You still don't every time, but... I mean, I do. I just, I just know that I have to trust it now, mm. and that's a great relief in some ways. And you, Amanda? I don't think I've changed at all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Charlotte a long time ago that uh, when my husband was cleaning out the attic, I found some old um, school examination booklets of mine, oh. and I read them, and I realised I had exactly the same style then that I have now. 
Um, the, um, the only thing that changes is the problematic that each new book sets, that you set yourself, and how you'll approach it. Um, so that begs, that begs a question. Parker once said, your style is who you are. If mm. you're going to change your style, you have to change yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and that's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> it begs a question, though, doesn't it? Do you think that, I suppose, what then is teaching? I mean, if that style was there and that voice was there, well, not perhaps voice, but the style was there at the beginning, you know, it's the old question, nature, nurture or talent, craft, where, where do they sit for you? Uh, I don't think you can teach writing, but I think what you can do is give great moral support <laughs> younger writers or newer writers and help them hold their nerve. Mm. You know, your experience has taught you that to be dogged is the main thing, to persevere. Mm. And I used to have students who'd bring in work and they'd say it's rubbish, it's dreadful. And sometimes it was pretty bad, but I was able to say, yes, it'll be pretty bad until you get to the last 20% and then you'll pull it all together. And there, nine times out of ten they did because, you know, they were good candidates and, and they'd been chosen for a reason. Um, but the other thing you can do, in, it, it, apart from the psychological aspect, um, my old friend Jan McKemish, now no longer with us, instituted, when she ran the uh, Masters in Writing at the University of Queensland, she instituted a course on grammar. Oh. And the... Many of the candidates came in were insulted by this. Some of them had already published books. And this course went for six weeks, and at the end of it they were asking if it could be extended. Mm. Because no one had ever actually gotten them to think about how to use a verb. You know, it was all instinctive. And they suddenly realised that there's such a thing as, as, as um, tactical address, tactical writing, mm -hmm. and it may come down a lot. You know, one... Um, one inappropriate verb will wreck a paragraph. And so that very, very close reading is what you can teach mm. uh, so that people, you make them aware of how good work is an accretion of small moments. Mm. And um, that's what you can teach, I think. Mm. Beautiful. Um, we are going to go to questions in a moment. So if you have a question that you would like to ask either of the writers, please can you come, there's a microphone here and I think a microphone on this side as well, if you could just make your way down and um, I, will, I will invite you. But in the meantime, um, I just sort of want to throw a question to both of you. Um, Charlotte writes a really wonderful essay in here which is nominally about ageing. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you about what that process of maturation feels like as both a writer and a human. Because on a day like today, um, I don't know about you, but I still feel kind of, because of the forces that are swirling, somehow like a child as well as an adult. Mm. Anyway, um, could you just talk a little about both of you about ageing? Yeah. Aging. Um, I am aging, and we all are aging. But what I'm, what I'm sort of surprised to find as I get older is how much I prefer being older to being younger, <laughs> and um, just so many things you just don't matter anymore. You know, the sort of drama has gone out of life um, it, to me in a really good way. It's sort of. And I guess you have perspective that you, you can't have when you're 20. The long view is um, a helpful thing. Um, and, you know, obviously there's difficulties that come with that. But, I mean, I found being young absolutely no picnic at all. I hated being young. <laughs> and I always wanted to be older, even when I was a child. <laughs> so, you know, bring it on, that's what I say. Mm. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, well said. Mm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to go back because we haven't got anyone at the mic at the moment. I'm going to go back. You mentioned place a moment ago. You said you like to start with place. You've both written, interestingly, recently about the ocean and, you know, places the weekend is by the ocean and the labyrinth, of course, is infected with salt throughout. But you've also both written prisons. And I'm just curious about 
place and where it comes in terms of your process? What comes first and how vital it is? Amanda, could you maybe start that? Um, yes, I'm just thinking. Um, I don't think I have a very strong sense of place. I can think of a lot of writers who have a wonderful descriptive gift that I lack. I'd beg to differ on that. This is, sorry, are you with me or not on that? I mean, this feels so deeply place-driven. Anyway, keep going. Well, put it this way, I have to work at it. It doesn't come yeah. naturally. Yeah. I have to really, really work at it. And um, I'm more interested in space than place. I'm more interested in the way in which the spaces we live in, the built environment, affect us. And... Um, you know, that what I've been working on lately is uh, someone who buys a church to turn it into a domestic home. And, again, this came from being a sponge. You know, I just suddenly saw all these churches with sale and people were turning them into homes, and I thought, this is bizarre. Um, and then I started thinking about what are our sacred spaces, secular or religious? How do we feel when we're in them? How do we respond to them? How do we renovate them? renovation, the great Australian religion. Um, so I'm more interested in space, really. Place is just a kind of a stage setting mm. uh, for me and um, I'll create the landscape I need for the plot, which is why I never set my novels in a real town. Um, I'm more interested in the house the character lives in than the landscape, to be honest. It's very... very Female again, perhaps very domestic. It's also, it's interesting too, it is the engagement with the reader, isn't it? I've just said that's about the ocean. I bet for a lot of people it's about inner city Sydney too, you know. I mean, that's very strongly evoked in those houses there and the, the, the sort of crumbly places. I always places. remember that from Camille's Bread particularly, the, the, the house. So, and, you know, a house is a perfect vehicle for a novel, you know, that any sort of containment is very useful, isn't it, narratively speaking. Um, so prisons are kind of the ultimate containment, I guess. Mm. What do you think is the draw for, for you of, I mean, or for both of you? You had to, I suppose, for the plot, but the prison creation in the book is, is very queasy and kind of dreamlike. I mean, even the colour of those walls. Um, how did you go about imagining or researching that? Uh, is that a question to me? Mm. Yeah. Sorry, yes, I'm looking at you, but you can't see me looking at um, you. I, I, it's not a prison novel, and so I just stylized it. Mm. Mm. Um, it's not, a, you know, it's, it's not in realism terms evoking uh, a real prison. No. It, there's a minimum amount of description needed to convince you that he's in a prison and she's there with him. Uh, so I, those scenes are highly stylized, I think, which is why I italicised them. Mm. Sort of set them out as another space, both a psychological space as well as a, a, an actual concrete space. Um, there's such pleasure in the change of font. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that you can indicate to a reader that you want us to think differently about something. We've got a question over here, a lady who's been brave enough to come down the front and ask a question. I have a question for Amanda. Just about the ending of the labyrinth, I found that ending the most exquisite kind of dance, the way the pieces fell into place and yet there was an openness about it and nothing was really resolved. Um, I just wondered what, at what point in the writing process did you know that, that that's what you were heading towards and did you write that and then work backwards perhaps? Um, to be honest, I can't remember when I realised that was the ending. Um, I, can, I could tell you now about the work I've just done, how I tried out different endings. But a strange thing will happen when you publish a book, and Charlotte, I'm sure, will agree with me, is that you actually forget a lot about it. You forget how you did it often, and sometimes you forget what's in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very, um, very bizarre. Um, 
And I can't remember. Um, I wanted it to, to achieve a kind of form. So in a sense, in reconciling with her brother, she goes back to the childhood labyrinth where they played together. So it seemed to me to be a resolution of the initial premise, if I can put it that way. Um, and she shut herself off and the effect of building the labyrinth with this young artist who's a kind of surrogate son, Yuko. I mean, it's partly about the redemptive power of art. In doing that, she's able to open up again to her brother uh, and the world. And this is what I think art does for us. Um, you know, it enables us to go on. It enables us to resolve a lot of things. And that's why it's so important in our life and why we need more arts funding, I will say. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, we have a second question on this side. Hi, this question's for Charlotte. In your book, The Weekend, you are speaking about female friendship, and I think that was so exciting for me because many things look at romantic friendship and intimacy, and you look at how thorny and difficult it becomes over the decades, uh, the kind of decision-making we make about, shall I stick with this ship or not? Can you speak more about why you chose female friendship as your subject? Thank you for that question. Um, I guess the, the, the problem of that book for me, or the question that I wanted to answer for myself was, is it possible to maintain a really alive, rich, vibrant friendship over 20, 30, 40, 50 years? I was looking at that time at, at my mother-in-law's generation. She had friends for 50 years. Sometimes they were pretty snippy with each other, um, but they loved each other very deeply. And, um, and I was looking at my own friendships of, you know, 20 years and how they can sort of deepen but also be taken for granted a bit. You know, one might, you know, the kind of um, polite edges are sometimes just sort of sheared off. And I took to really observing women in groups in places, and I must say the art gallery cafe. <laughs> Gold. Absolutely. One day, actually, I was at a cafe writing and two women friends came over, bustled over and sat down at my table and said, oh, we need some space. Can we sit here? I said, sure you can. And I'm typing away. And they started talking about their other friend and I'm just like transcribing, you know. <laughs> I was thinking, well, I'm typing. Surely you just take a look and think, hmm. Anyway, um, it was I, I, that question, they were basically sisters by the time, you know, the women in my book, by the time they've been friends for so long, they are, they are like siblings with the same kind of, um, you know, rubbing up against each other that, that siblings do. And I wanted to write about friendship kind of for the reason you say that we put so much focus on romantic love in, in um, stories that... I think for a lot of women especially, and especially as we get older, um, and just, you know, speaking very pragmatically in terms of life expectancy, we, there's a lot of women on their own as towards the end of their life. Men have, you know, died earlier or gone in other ways. And I think those friendships are... And in my own life, my friendships with my women friends are utterly sustaining to me. And I want... To, I mean, I guess the weekend... I sometimes spoke of it as a kind of cautionary self-portrait. I was like, what kind of woman am I going to be in 20 years' time, 30 years' time? How do I want my friendships to be? And I kind of like, I don't want them to be like this. <laughs> um, but, and I value my friends who, who tell me what they think, you know, that, that sort of um, shearing off of the, of the, you know, holding back on things. I want my friends to say, don't do that. <laughs> You know, and my, my, my closest friends are the ones who will say, no, no, you've got to stop doing that. That's silly, you know, or whatever, you know, sort of tell you who you are. I want that in my life, you know, from my friends. Thanks. We've got time just for one last question and then, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Thank you. Um, my question is also for Charlotte and I'm wary of asking this on a politically tense day, but <laughs> I'm really interested in authors who write dystopia and I think given... The, what we're seeing in the States with, you know, mm. increasing control on 
women's bodies, um, when you write something like the natural way of things, do you anticipate that it will resonate for however many years to come? And how do you reconcile that in your head of kind of feeling a little bit predictive or profit-like, I guess? Thank you for that question. Um, what's happening in the States is utterly terrifying. Utterly terrifying. And what I would like for us all to remember is that that could happen here. It really could. I won't start about the people in politics now actively supporting that kind of um, control of women's bodies, people in conservative politics, but they are doing it and they have it on their agenda. Um, so when I wrote The Natural Way of Things, I didn't think it was predictive. I felt it was reflective of a current situation. And I was reminded later of Margaret Atwood talking about The Handmaid's Tale when she said, nothing that I wrote into The Handmaid's Tale has not already happened to women mm -hmm. at some point through history. It's all real. Uh, so, you know, the dystopia is... It's, it's, it's what's happening and what has happened. Um, I'm really amazed that that book has sort of stuck around as, as long as it has. And I suspect it's because those attitudes are still here. It's, it hasn't gone. And I'm really, I really hope that, I'm really, I won't talk about the election, <laughs> but we need a government that respects women as individual people, not just because they're mothers, not just because they're someone's daughter, sister, whatever. You know, there's that great T-shirt that says she's someone's and it's got mother, daughter, sister and all that's crossed out and full stop is after someone. So, you know, I don't know what to say except that we have to be absolutely vigilant about protecting women's rights to autonomy over their own bodies. So thank you very much for the question. Thanks. We do have to wrap up, um, but what I just wanted to say in closing about both these books, and I don't know if they're particular, but, you know, moderating a conversation, you get a chance to read something two or three times, which you don't necessarily always give yourself. And I wanted to say that, I mean, I've, I've, I had already read The Luminous Solution a couple of times because it felt like something obviously nourishing to me. But I've read The Labyrinth now three times and what I want to say is it is a bit like uh, a dream in a way in that it can be excavated and excavated endlessly. And so I would urge you to go to the bookshop if you haven't already got either of these and get them because they will feed you at a time when, as Charlotte said, we need to be fed. They'll feed you well and they'll gird you for... Um, They'll give you hope. And it's an amazing thing to say about The Labyrinth because it isn't an obviously hopeful book, but then Amanda doesn't write obviously anything. Have a great election day and thank you, Amanda, for struggling to be with us. Yes, thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.